Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. Let's start with verse 1. And it says, And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, men and brethren. So let's stop here. Let's break this down. It says, Paul earnestly beholds the crowd. He sets his eyes upon them with a sincere gaze. So you can imagine for a moment that as he inspects his audience, he's taking in all of their looks. He's taking in all all of the things that they might be thinking about him, but he's also, his mind is probably wandering to times past, right? He's probably thinking about the times in which Uh, he may have come before them to receive those warrants. And he's seeing some of these would have been the same men, same faces that he would have come before in the past. And he probably had thoughts of what his old life was like. Right? About who he used to be. Right? And as he stares out out, out at them, in return, their eyes are taking him in as well. And they're looking at him, and they're thinking thoughts of hatred, right? They, these are men that want him dead. And so you can see, I mean, it's, again, it's like uh, back in that scene, right, with Clint Eastwood standing there, looking at those guys, and just get the close-up, and the eyes are like, you know, they're looking at each other, and they're squinting, and, you know, there's like a nervous tick maybe. And so you can see, you can see the Sanhedrin looking upon Paul with, with indignation, And so it's almost like a showdown, isn't it? So you can sense the hostility in the room. And what we do know is that that while the Sanhedrin is looking upon him with hate, he actually has the capacity to look on them with love and with peace. It says that it's it's an earnest beholding. An earnest beholding. It's It's a genuine and sincere gaze that he has for them. The look in his eyes would have been one of peace and sincerity and love. And so you can see the difference here. Now I want to point out to you that for a believer, there's something very significant about our countenance. And so the very first thing that we're going to look at is what it means to have a good countenance, a good gaze, a good look upon your face. And this story immediately takes me back to Stephen, right? This reminds us of the countenance of another man who faced the Sanhedrin, in fact. This, the same group of men, St- Deacon Stephen looked at these same group of men who were ready to kill him, to stone him, that hated him with all of their hatred. And, it, and there's something really unique that Scripture records about the way Stephen held himself and, and, and the state of his countenance. In Acts chapter 6, verse 9, it says, Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, and Cyrenians uh, and Alexandrians, and of them uh, of Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Then they suborned uh, men, they gathered men, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And so, so in other words, they enticed these men to make false accusations against Stephen. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. Some very similar, similar accusations to the ones being laid against Paul, in fact. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses, Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it has, had been the face of an angel. So they're lying. They're casting hatred, f- false accusations against him. And, and all through this, Stephen just stands, and he takes it all in, and his countenance was that of an angel. Now, I've never seen an angel now, one of the things I know about angels is they're, they're not like what we, we see them in Renaissance art, okay? Angels look like men, okay? They have, a, they have the countenance of a human being. They look like people. 
But, this, but when it says that it, it refers to the, 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 the countenance or the, the face of an angel, one of the things that we know about angels is that they, they shine with the brightness of God. And it also makes me think about the countenance of Moses who stood before the living God, and when he came down from the mount, his face shone with the brightness. In other words, his face re- reflected the fact that he had spent time with God. And I, and I imagine that that would have been the same countenance that Stephen had. That of an angel, glowing with confidence, glowing with peace, gentleness. And I want to suggest to you that we don't just get there because we want to be that kind of believer. You know, when I was young, um, this is in my notes, I don't know how this happened, but I'm going to tell a bunch of stories about being young, okay? Um, When I was in elementary school, I was in Miss Jones' class in fourth grade. Fourth grade. Fourth grade was, was my hardest year. Anybody else have a hard fourth grade year? Miss Jones was rough, too. She was, like the, she was like the typical like old lady teacher who was ready to retire, but she just wasn't quite there yet, right? And uh, so Miss Jones, uh, I had never gotten in trouble ever, ever. Now, I, you're going to wonder why that's true with the st- other stories that I tell later on, but... I had never really been in trouble ever in elementary school. I was quiet. Um, and, but Miss Jones, I guess she must have been saying a lot of stuff that I disagreed with throughout the year because I was always in the hallway because she was upset because my, my face somehow always contorted into very, it was like very responsive face, facial features that would always tell what was actually in my heart. And so if, if, if Miss Jones said something that I guess I disagreed with, I would probably let her know with some sort of facial expression, right, that she was a stupid idiot and that I hated her, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that's how I feel now. I'm saying at the time, as a fourth grader, I thought she was like, like, I didn't know they let witches into teaching. I thought they were all, at, I thought they were all teaching at Hogwarts. But somehow, Okay. But my, my face revealed what was going on in my heart, right? And as believers, we have to recognize that our countenance means something. That the expressions on our face, that they mean something. And when we face hardship or experience difficulty, every believer has at their access a peace and a resolve that denies the temporal experience, denies the Miss Jones of the world, Okay? The Miss Jones of your workplace, the Miss Jones in your family, the people that are contentious against you, the people that lay accusation against you, or even just the experiences that we face in terms of just being believers, their suffering that we come into in this world that we're going to experience, and how we respond with our face is very important. And it tells whether or not we are people that are founded in the temporal or founded in the eternal. Whether or not we are, are sourced in our experiences and the, and the ups and downs and the waves of our life, or we are founded in the, in the truth that transcends all of that. I love this verse. I want to share it with you. Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 8 says, Behold, I have made thy face strong against their faces. Fear them not, neither be dismayed at their looks, though they be a rebellious house. And I love that because what we can know is that, that That even for the Old Testament believers, same as for us, when we're in difficult situations, we don't have to be moved by them. And our face can actually display what's true in our heart. So here's key point number one. Your countenance does reveal what's in your heart. And I know in this room, look, there's a lot of people in here. All different stages of your walk and your faith in the Lord. And there's some of y'all you got to repent even right now. You know for a fact that you wear your heart on your sleeve and you wear your heart on your face is the real problem, right? You're like me in fourth grade, right? And you're, you're, anytime something difficult happens to you, okay, anytime you have hardship, anytime you're in disagreement with someone, what happens is immediately because you don't have yourself bridled and your heart is not stayed on the divine or the eternal, your face immediately becomes everything that you're feeling inside of you. And so what I want to say to you is you don't address your countenance issues 
by forcing yourself to be flat affect. In other words, you can't just go through life like, right? Like you got Botox, all those Botox, right? Doesn't that creep you out? What happens to these actors? They get the Botox, and then the expressions are gone. Just, and so now they look like walking robots, right? We don't want that. All right, human beings have facial expressions. And here's the deal. you got to start with your heart. you got to start with the state of your heart. Is the only way to fix the countenance issue. There's a, I don't know where this came from. Some people attribute it to Mark Trotter. I've heard, I don't know, who, maybe Eric, you can help me with the history of this saying. But, but a, a lot of times you hear preachers around here say, well, uh, what do you get when you squeeze a lemon? Right? And I think I always want to give the wrong answer, like, oh, lemon juice. But the truth is, whatever's in the lemon is what you get, right? Whatever's inside that lemon, it might not just be lemon juice. It might be rotten and sour in there. There might worms and, and I, don't, I don't know what gets into fruit. I'm not a farmer, Okay. I don't know what gets in apples. Worms, I guess, worms get in there. And they get, things get rotten. I know that Eva likes to buy fruit that we don't eat. Okay? And so the fruit, this time of year, the fruit flies are like around the bad fruit. Look, what you get from a, 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 from a lemon when you squeeze it is whatever is inside of it. And the same thing is absolutely true for you. When you get squeezed, what comes out? Your face will display it. Well, all we have to know is what your face says. Just discerning your expressions. In moments of difficulty, what does our facial expression reveal about us? Do you display the peace that you say that you have within you? And for Paul, in this moment, the reason that he can stand with an earnest and sincere beholding is because what's inside of him is the perfect peace and knowledge of who Jesus Christ is to him. All of those people and all of their scowls and all of their frustration and their anger towards him, it can actually just roll right off of his back. And and here's the deal. In terms of this key point, I don't know what to tell you except for the fact that the more you know of Jesus Christ, the better your countenance will be. And there's people in this room that need to, you've got to determine right now what I need. I know That it's not just my face that displays the fact that I'm not a mature believer, but it's the way that I act, the way that I respond to difficulty. I know for a fact there's maturity issues in my walk. I need to sign up for discipleship. I need to get the Word of God in me. I've got to learn what it means to have an intimate walk with Jesus Christ. And when I do, I know that God can transform that rotten, fruit-flied, infested uh, lemon. He can take that and he can actually make holy and righteous lemon juice. Who doesn't want lemonade this time of year, right? My kids love lemonade, and especially if it's pink. And the thing is, pink lemonade don't taste no different. It's just pink. They love it. Okay, but the point is, is that, is that when you get squeezed, you want to know that the right thing is going to come out. And for us as believers... That's Jesus Christ. That's a, that's, a, that's a righteous countenance. It's an earnest beholding. Okay, then he continues on and he says, and men and brethren. And notice he addresses them. Remember in the last chapter he addresses the crowd and he says men and brethren and fathers, right? Now, he, he's edited out fathers in this case. Like at this point in the situation, Paul recognizes that these, that these men... They might be his brethren in terms of lineage, but he, I think he's had a revelation that these aren't his fathers in the faith. Once upon a time, these were his fathers in the faith. Right? Once upon a time, he was discipled at the feet of Gamaliel. Right? Once upon a time, he came before the Sanhedrin. These were his people. But he can't say that anymore, can he? So he refers to them as men and brethren. Now, I want us to look at the fullness of his statement because it's going to reveal to us a lot and there'll be a lot to consider here. So he says, men and brethren, I have lived in all conscience, uh, all good conscience before God until this day. And so before we were talking about of of a good countenance, now we want to talk about what it means to be of a good conscience, a good conscience. Paul says that he's lived in all good conscience before God. So what does that mean, a good conscience? What does that mean when we say that, and why is it important? Okay, another story. In third grade, so go back a year, okay, before I, before I was, you know, when I was still good, 
right? I'd never gotten in trouble in school before, right? Now, um, this would have been 1990, 1991, I believe, okay? Yeah. That was distracting, wasn't it? Okay, so this was the, this was the year uh, after, just following, Michael Jordan's first ring, okay? So, man, I was, I was fixated, okay? You, just imagine being in third grade, right? Third grade, sports were fun, it was exciting, and then Michael Jordan was like the biggest thing on earth. And uh, so, you know, that, that infiltrated every aspect of my life. Right, like I, the the the, sh- the shirts. I couldn't afford the shoes. We were poor. We don't have food stamps, so it wouldn't. I wouldn't get any Jordans. Okay, let's put it that way. I was at the time. I was wearing um, L.A. Gears knockoff Reebok pumps. Okay, because this is what what you do when you're poor is you get the knockoff version. So L.A. Gear, which doesn't exist anymore, I don't think, had a fake pump tennis shoe, and I, that's what I wore. Um, but I was about Michael Jordan, so much so that I thought it really wise for me to take a paper clip and carve the word bulls into the top of my desk. Okay? And because it's 1991, the letters were all very, you know, like sharp because it was cool to have like really, sh- there was no like soft, ang- like s- side, semi- everything was like jagged like this. And it was, it was not a bulls with an S, it was bulls with a Z to prove how serious <laughs> I was. Okay? And it felt good, real good. I, put, I finished off that Z with the paper clip, and I'm, and I'm thinking, actually, it might have been a compass. I probably had, How do they let kids go to school with those compasses? You know what I'm talking about? That's basically a knife. <laughs> it's like a sharp, jagged ice pick that every third grade boy had. I, I think I might have actually carved with that. And so, man, I felt real good about it for about three minutes, okay? But then I realized in my heart of hearts, I was a believer, okay? I did have the Holy Spirit. I realized in my heart of hearts that this was the wrong thing to do. And so, you know, I'm doing like, thinking that it's going to come up if I rub it hard enough. I'm like, okay, it doesn't come up. This This is fairly early on in the school year. And so from that point on, To the end of the school year, I'm putting my books at the end of the school day. We had to put our chairs on top of our desk, right, for the cleaning lady or whoever came in. I don't know why we did that. But we put our chairs on top of our desk, and I I slid my books over this graphic image that I had created so that Miss Nelson, who was my my beloved, okay, Miss Nelson was was the greatest elementary school teacher ever, right? She was only just good to me. She was like God the Father, right? <laughs> she was only ever just good to me. She was the best. We had the best activities. Okay, but I, I was afraid that what I had done would hurt her and get me in trouble. And so what I did is I slid my books over that every night all year long. And as I left the classroom, I left with fear in my heart. Fear that Miss Nelson would find out. And you know what that is? That's a bad conscience. I had a bad conscience before Miss Nelson. I didn't feel good about who I was. I wasn't right in, like, there wasn't right standing between us. Something was in the way. And what I should have done is, if I was right, if I was going to be right with Miss Nelson, the thing I should have done is I should have immediately told her what I had done and suffered the consequences, whatever they might be. In third grade, it was probably just like, hey, you, don't do that, okay? But not to, in my mind, they were going to hang me right? Like, there, I was, it was the end of me, right? I was done. Uh, but but I, what I should have done is I should have gone to Miss Nelson and I should have said, this is what I did. Because it would have cleared my conscience and I wouldn't have had, like, walking to the school bus every day, this great fear, right? I would have been able to let go of that. Now, what Paul has is a good conscience before God. Now, why can he have that? Why is that accessible to him? The term good conscience is a term only used in the New Testament. You know that? Why is that? Yeah, the only reason that we can have a good conscience is because of what Jesus did. 
I think it's really interesting that you don't find good conscience in the Old Testament because every year you had to go make those sacrifices and it wasn't right. It was like, it was like you were living with a looming cloud over you that you were going to break the law and that you did not deserve God's salvation. Every year putting a band-aid over a wound and nothing could ever be made right. But because of what Jesus Christ did and the blood that he shed, we have the ability to have a good conscience. And I think of all the reference to good, references to good conscience in the New Testament, I think there's one that really defines what we're talking about here. And I want to look at that real quick. And that's 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. And this is about having blamelessness. Okay, so we talk about good conscience. It's related to this idea of blamelessness. Okay? Which means without blame. All right? And so 1 Peter, he talks about having, being blameless before men. That we can, that we can have a good conscience before mankind. This is how it goes. Verse 16, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be, may be ashamed that falsely accuse you, uh, accuse your good conversation in Christ. Okay, so what does that mean? All right, what Peter's talking about here is, is he's trying to encourage the believers that if they have a good conversation, in other words, a good lifestyle before Jesus Christ, they're going to face accusations from other people. People are going to want to accuse them, just like Paul right now in this moment. We're going to get accused of stuff, of being bigots, of being, you know, intolerant, right, of of whatever it is that Christians hear all the time. You're going to hear it from family members. You're going to hear it from friends. People are going to reject you, and you're going to face accusation from others. But here's the deal. A good conscience before mankind looks like them seeing your life and saying to themselves, well, even though I'm frustrated and I, and I feel hatred before the, uh, towards this person and, I, and this person is in bad standing in my eyes, I can't deny the fact that they, they're living out what they say and there's something different and unique about them. And I can't really find blame. I mean, I'm working at it. I'm working very hard. And I can't find any blame in this individual. They are blameless. And, 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 and that causes you to have a good conscience before mankind knowing that you're without blame. You know, it kind of reminds me of Daniel. You guys remember how Daniel, he couldn't be accused of anything, right? And these men were plotting and scheming and thinking all day long, like, how do we catch Daniel so we can get him out of this position of power? He's got way too much influence. We hate him. We want his job, okay? It's like, it's so shady, right? Like, can you imagine? People do this thing for a, for a job or a position. I mean, I try to think about it, like, who wants any job that bad? I guess these people exist. It seems like he had a lot of responsibility that they really probably didn't want. <laughs> right? Maybe it paid really well. I don't know. But they wanted this guy gone. And so what they did is they came up with a, a, a plan to create false accusation. They had to work really hard to make an accusation against Daniel. And at the end of the day, he still stood blameless before them. And I think when we live blameless before other people, we can have a good conscience. We don't have to be burdened by their accusations or their threats. Or their, you know how, you know whether or not you, your life testifies of who Jesus Christ is. You know. And the only reason you'd have a bad conscience before mankind is if you're a freaking hypocrite. <laughs> like you know that they, people can make actual accusations against you. Now, what Paul says, though, is that he has a good conscience before God, and that's even more important. And in the passage in 1 Peter, if we jump down to verse 21, we see this word good conscience come up again. And this is a good conscience that says that you're blameless before God. Blameless before God. Verse 21, the like figure, whereunto even baptism, this this word baptism means baptism in the Holy Spirit, salvation, it's referring to salvation, doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what is this telling us? It's telling us that we can't have a good conscience by doing good things. Like you can't rid yourself of the filthiness of your flesh by doing a bunch of things and acting the right way. That's not how you get rid of your bad feelings and your bad conscience. You can only have a good conscience because of what Jesus Christ did through the death, burial, and resurrection. A good conscience has everything to do with whether or not you're sourced in Christ through salvation. Whether or not you've been forgiven of your sins. And Paul says here before these men that he has a good conscience before God. 
And what he means by that is that he doesn't just feel that today. But every day since the day of his salvation, he's been right and of a good conscience before the Lord. This is one that was not a declaration of, of arrogance. It was a legal declaration. It was a legal declaration of his innocence before the living God. He was justified. And in that moment, in front of that crowd, he found solace in the fact that he'd been forgiven. And that leads us to the next key point, And that's this. Christ's forgiveness is freedom for our conscience. Christ's forgiveness is freedom for our conscience. You know, it doesn't take much Bible study to know that Satan hates our freedom more than anything. He hates our freedom. And there is nothing more detestable to the legions of demons that observe human, uh, human activity and, and they see upon Christians an unmovable spirit. Right? They see in Christians, when they should be stirred up and frustrated and disappointed and upset, they see on Christians an unmovable and content and fully gratified spirit. That makes them matter than anything. See, Satan knows that he's got you when your countenance change, changes and your conscience changes. And we can't give him that benefit. So upon hearing Paul say that he's a man of good conscience before God, the wicked men recoil at this testimony. They hate it. And we've talked about this before in, in times past in Acts. We talked about this principle. That when Satan doesn't know what else to do, what does he do? He reverts to what? Phys violence. Physical persecution. That's what, he, that's what he goes to when he doesn't... When, when, Poverty doesn't work. When divided families doesn't work. When losing your job doesn't work. When, when difficult situations, when cancer and, and illness strikes, when that doesn't work, right? Whatever it is that he's doing in your life to create division and a, and a bad conscience, if it doesn't work, the only thing he knows to do is to revert to violence. And that's what we see here. We see a physical attack. So what does it say? Verse 2. And upon hearing Paul make this declaration, it says, And the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. They didn't know what to do, so they just punched him. Right? Which is like, I mean, we... we so Eloise, my daughter, she's four. She likes, she likes to throw hands. <laughs> All right? Now, the older two, they're, they're big enough where the, the punches and the pushing and the slapping, they don't really don't bother them that much, right? Because Eloise isn't that strong, right? Um, this is insert meme of me, of me doing this, <laughs> since you guys like that so much. She's, she doesn't weigh much. She's pretty thin. She can't really hurt anybody. But that's what she does when she doesn't know what else to do. And her feelings get really big inside of her. And, and her conscience is bad. She acts out. Man, that's what happens here. That's what happens here. And I, I kind of take, take solace in knowing that Satan has to play that card. Because it means he's on his last leg. In John chapter 18, verse 20, it says, Jesus answered him, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple whither the Jews always resort, and in secret have I said nothing. So Jesus is like, I'm an open book. I, 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 whatever I've said in secret, I've said it to your faces. Uh, you know, he's declaring right here that he's, he's the, the son of God, right? And that, he's, that he has a blameless testimony before them. Why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me. What I have said unto them, behold, they know what I said. And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand. <clears throat> Don't make me get Peter. Peter take a dude's ear off over this kind of stuff. I mean, this is the, this is the, this is the living God. 
This is the creator of the universe. And this officer thinks he's got the right to put his hands on my God. It just irks me like nothing. And it just shows me how blind the world is. They, they hit him. And Jesus says in verse 23, he answers, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? I mean, even Jesus relates to humanity so much that he's in a position where he's like, he, he defends himself here. He's like, what have I done that would cause you to hit me? And the answer is nothing. And in an act of similar righteous protest, Paul speaks up to Ananias. When these guys hit him, he speaks up and he confronts this goon squad, right? That they've, they've broken not only Roman law, but also Jewish law. They broke the law. They broke the law. According to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 5, they broke the law. In verse 3 it says, Then Paul said unto them, Then said Paul unto them, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall. For sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law? Okay, so we're going to break this down for a second. But what I love here is I love the fruit of the Spirit in Paul. I love it. I love it. It's on display. He's so tempered and he's so prudent. And he starts, though, by saying this thing. He calls them a whited wall. Like he's bold. Like, let's not take that away from him. He's bold, but he's still tempered and he's prudent. And he calls them a whited wall, which for a lot of us, we read that and we're like, I mean, that's the worst trash talking I've ever heard, calling someone a white wall. But you got to remember during this time period, right? Uh, We're talking about in in the Mediterranean regions of the world, that there was, from a, and people know this that live in coastal areas or places where there's lots of humidity, that there's grime that builds up on the surface of things, right? There's grime that builds up on the surface, and it was really common for the walls of a city to be painted or whitewashed white rather than cleaned, right? In other words, all this grime builds up on the surface of someone's home, the dust, the wind blowing, the things like that on the city walls. What they do is that occasionally they would just go out and instead of cleaning it, they just paint over it. Just paint it white. That somehow that does the trick. But the truth is just beneath the surface. Right? Have you, anybody ever tried to paint a wall that has dust on it? Right? If you can get the paint to take... Just a few months later and a little bit of humidity and it's going to start peeling. It's going to start coming off because whatever is underneath that paint, you can't really cover it up. So he calls them a whited wall. In other words, it's a person who's not dealt with their sin but simply covers it up with spiritual behavior and high looks. They were a whited wall. And I wonder if there are whited walls in this room. Like maybe the fact that you have a good conscience, has or a bad conscience before men and before God, and because your countenance is bad, maybe that has to do with there's something, there's something in your heart, there's a grime, there's a sin that needs to be repented of and dealt with before you can, before you can feel clean before the Lord. I wonder if there's anybody who's a whited wall today. But he's right though. Look at look what he says. He calls them a whiter wall, but he says, God shall smite thee. And that's true. That's true for the whited wall. For, for, the, for the person with undealt with sin. For the person who's not forgiven. There is a dealing. And here's the thing I want you to learn from this, is that Paul knew... There was no need to defend himself. He knew that God was going to do all the defending that he needed. Paul himself pins in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. So here's the deal for Paul. He's free from the psychological burden 
of their oppression towards him. He's free from it. Why? Why? Because he knows that God's going to deal with it. Sure, it might hurt to get punched. You ever been punched in the face? I've been punched in the face. It's not fun. It doesn't feel good. Okay? It hurts a little bit. Especially if it makes your head do this. It's not good. Catch you on the jaw, in the temple. These are play- You don't want to be hit in the face. It doesn't feel good. Okay? But he gets punched, and he can deal with that pain, that temporal pain. Because he knows. He knows of Christ's forgiveness himself, and he knows the promises of God. So this leads us to the next key point. In the midst of trial, your surrender is liberating. In the midst of your trial, your ability to say, I cannot control this situation, but I know that God can. I cannot control what's happening to me right now. I can't control the way people are treating me. But I know that God's got some promises. And in the end of all things, I know he'll set things right. And it's that kind of surrender that's liberating, that's freeing. And we've got, we, have, we have to believe that, pro, that God's promises are true. And when we rely on them, we can feel that sense of freedom. A burden will be lifted. A burden of figuring out why people treat you bad or, or how you need to make things right. Like, is there anybody in here that knows that you're a fixer? Like, in your mind, you, you, you want to fix things that are wrong. And you just work so hard at trying to set things right. And a lot of times that just blows up in your face. You can't fix the way people think or feel, especially towards you. I mean, there might be some things that you can do to, 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 to get forgiveness from them, but the truth is at the end of the day, you don't control anyone else's mind or heart or thoughts. You don't control those things. And there's freedom in surrendering those things over to Christ. Watch Christ model it perfectly for us. As he hangs on the cross in the darkest hour, in the fiercest pain that he's ever experienced, he has the ability to say, in Luke chapter 23, verse 34, then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Man. Man. What kind of spirit is that? What kind of good conscience is that? See, that's, that's the good conscience I want that is so free that when people treat you wrong and they treat you like dirt, that you have the ability to say, man, I feel sorry for them because they don't know you. They don't know Christ. They don't know the freedom I know. And you can, you can ask the Lord, Lord, pursue them, be relentless, draw them into a place of forgiveness because you've been set free and you know the promises. You know them. And they stood by, uh, and they that stood by said, revilest thou God's high priest? Okay, because, because I mean, he did just say, God's going to smite you, right? Like, you were a whited wall. Like, he did just say that. And, and so they said, uh, they, they stood by and they, they said, how are you going to revile God's high priest? Well, first of all, the high priest just broke the law, right? Because you can't hit a prisoner, either by Roman law or by Jewish law, someone who's not been, uh, 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 has, has not been convicted of what they've been accused, right? Then said Paul, I wish not, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, Thou shalt not speak, speak evil of the ruler of thy people. So they're saying, how dare you speak evil against the high priest? And he's like, I wish I could speak evil against him, because this guy's a jerk. <laughs> right? That's like what's going on in his mind. But listen to me. What he says is, I know the law. And because he is the high priest, I will not speak evil of him. Now, I know for me, in this situation, I, would, I personally would want to fight. I would, I would, you're like, I would be down, okay? I mean, he's not cuffed, right? They took him out of the cuffs. He's, I mean, right? But he doesn't do that. And he won't even speak evil. He won't even speak evil. And this is why. Here's our next key point. In the midst of trial, your obedience is enough. 
Like the person of good conscience doesn't have to, doesn't have to defend themselves. But more than that, what they need to do is obey if they want to keep a good conscience before the Lord. Because he knew that to speak evil of the high priest or to throw hands would have resulted in a bad conscience. And he didn't want that. He wanted to do right. And for him, obedience was enough. And I wonder for us, when we find ourselves in difficult situations, is obedience enough for you? Or do you want to fix the situation? Do you want to make sure that you've been heard? Do you want to make sure that you get the last word in? Do you want to make sure that everyone knows that you're the good guy and that's the bad guy? I mean, there's a lot of us in the, in the room who have a habit of trying to defend ourselves before man. When the truth is, obeying is just enough. Like, if you just, if you just listen to the Lord and do what he asked you to do, that's actually, that's, that's good. And you can let go of the other stuff. Your obedience is all you need to be right. Nothing else. I mean, because we're talking about two different types of right. Do you want to trade being right with men away from being right with God? Like, if you've got the option of being right in people's eyes, but it's going to take you defending yourself, and you're going to, have to go, you're going to have to go toe-to-toe, and you're going to have to work your... Or you can just be right with God. You get to choose. Now, now let's look at how brilliant Paul is. is that all this stuff is going on. He still has wisdom. He's still got his wit about him. Okay? Verse 6. But when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. Now, you might read that on the surface and say to yourself, I don't know what's going on here. What's the big deal? Okay, but Paul is brilliant. He is brilliant. So Paul's, so he knows, okay, check this out. He knows that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are disagreed on the issue of the resurrection of the human body. He knows that about them. And so, it's one of these, like, I don't know if you've ever seen a cartoon where it's like, there's, there's something going on, and a guy points that direction, and he's like, look over there. And then the person turns and looks, and then he's like out. This guy's just like, Boop, right? Like, it's a distraction tactic. He's like, look over there, look at that shiny thing. And then the instant they look that direction, Paul's like, right? Because what he did is he created division. He created a division between the Sadducees and the Pharisees that caused them to turn their debate away from Paul, okay, to focus on something else. But here's the deal. Paul's countenance is peace, isn't it? Paul's countenance is peace. His conscience is free. And his composure is cool. So much so that he has the wherewithal to devise an immediate plan in the midst of a difficult situation. He has the clarity of mind in the midst of his trial to devise a plan that divides his accusers. Because he knows that a house divided against itself can't stand. You know who he learned that from? Yeah. Well, yes. But Jesus made that exact same uh, uh, pitch in the midst of difficulty, right? In a difficult situation, he uses that same reasoning against his enemies. Verse 7, and when he had, he had so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. And, they arose a great, and there arose a great cry, and the scribes that were of the Pharisees part arose and strove, saying, we find no evil in this man. Oh, they changed their tune real quick. <laughs> but if a spirit or an angel uh, hath spoken to him, let us not fight against God pretentious. And when there arose a great dissension, the chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have uh, been pulled in pieces of them, he was worried that they were going to tear him apart, being pulled between the two, the two parties. Okay? 
commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and to bring him into the castle. So here's key point number five. In the midst of trial, let the truth manage your mind. Let the truth manage your mind. Because if you manage your mind, you're going to be a mess. I mean, we know each other well enough at this point, right? We're anxious, we're insecure, we're afraid, aren't we? We're depressed, we're disappointed, right? Our mind is like a warehouse of dysfunction. And if the right situation comes up, our very best is not going to cut it. So we have to let the truth manage our mind. And when it does, it'll bring that peace in our heart and our mind necessary to make the right decisions in the right moment. If you're all anxious and freaking out all the time, you're not going to make good decisions because you're too busy relying on your flesh and how you feel. But if you rest your mind, you stay your mind on truth, the result will be composure in your decision making. And we need good decision making. You guys have too much responsibility in ministry to have bad decision making. Don't trust your gut. Don't trust your gut. Trust God. Trust the truth. Now finally, let's look at what it means to have uh, be of good cheer. To be of good, good cheer. And then, okay, so, all, so they pull him out of the castle. He's out of the situation now, okay. And, and the night following, look at this. This is so good. This is so good. And the night following... The Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. For as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. It's one more reminder. That in your trial, Jesus stands with you. And just like, just like for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in the midst of the fiery furnace, there was one that stood out. The angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ himself, stood with them in that fiery furnace. In the midst of Paul's trial, how wonderful is it to know that Jesus Christ is standing with him and that he has a plan. And that leads us to key point number six. In the midst of trial, his promises are reviving. They They bring us good cheer. They bring us good cheer. And good cheer brings us back to a place of, of good countenance, doesn't it? Psalm 16, 8 says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. I want to invite the worship team up. And as we close, this is the invitation. There's some of us in this room who recognize that our anxiety and our fear And our desire to please people and to make things right, those desires, they own us. And in the midst of difficult situations, our countenance is bad. We don't have a good conscience before the Lord. And we are not composed. We're not constrained. We don't have self-control. And if any of those things are true about you, As we worship today, as we close in worship, as people stand, do not let that go undealt with. You need to have a conversation with Jesus. And you need to be reminded that Jesus stands with you. And that he ought not be forgotten or neglected. That he's not just like a he's not just like a a pet that's there when you need special comfort. He's your friend. He's ready to be engaged with. 
And if you, want to ha- if you want to have a good countenance, if you want to have a good conscience, if you want to be constrained and composed in the way that you behave, it's going to rely- uh, require you relying on him and recognizing that he stands with you Amen. and that you're forgiven and that his promises are true. And if you need to deal with any of those things today, if you've forgotten any of that, this is your opportunity to pray and to talk with him, to come forward and get, get, get help from a counselor or a leader in this ministry and have that conversation and get your heart right. Because just like what Jorge says, right? This is what he's preaching right this very moment, is that repentance is what we all need, a lifestyle of repentance. We can't rely on the repentance of our past, Right? But to be a good, good conscience before the Lord, it's going to require a lifestyle of repentance before Him. Let's do that right now. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you, and we thank you for your word, and we thank you for uh, everything that you've done for us in the midst of this ser- uh, service. I, I, I've got stumbling lips. Uh, I felt rushed. I'm not a good communicator. I don't need to be. I, I, can, I can, despite the failures and the weaknesses that I have, I can stand before you with a good conscience knowing that you're my God. And whatever needs to get done today in this service, you're going to do it. And you're faithful. And Lord, I just want to say, of a position of faith, I I ask and I, I pray that you would have your way with this people today. And that the, the word, uh, the words of truth, that they, would, they wouldn't come back void. And that people would have things in their life that they need to deal with. Things that they need to repent of. And you would work that out even right now during this invitation and this season of praise. I trust you for it because you're my Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in His Word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.